Every Sunday here at Elmwood, we read a psalm and we pray through it, followed by praying the Lord's Prayer together. Uh, Those words for the Lord's Prayer will be up on the screen behind me. Today's prayer and sermon are based on Psalm 139. You can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you, but I also encourage you that God's Word, especially the Psalms, is meant to be heard. Um, And I'm going to take us nice and slow through this one because it's so beautiful. So listen as I read God's word and be blessed by what you hear. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together. Lord, What more can we say that this psalm has not already said? There is no place we can be that we are not with you and you are not with us. There is no place too far or too dark or too high or too low. For as it says elsewhere, neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from you and your love for us. You know everything about us from before our birth to beyond our death. 
There is nothing in us that is hidden from you. And that truth, oh God, is both the most terrifying and the most wonderful thing for us to know. You know everything there is to know about us. And still you love us, you pursue us, and you draw us into your family. Amazing love, oh Lord. How can it be? This knowledge is too wonderful for us to fathom. Lord, for anyone here who feels lost in the dark and far from you, I pray that you would draw them close and reassure them with your loving presence. Let them know how near you are and that they are never alone. For anyone here carrying burdens no one else can see, Lord, I pray that you would bring those burdens into the light and not let them stay hidden so that you can be their savior and their healer. And as you continually draw near to us, help us to continually draw near to you. Help us to hear your heartbeat this week, to reach for your hand, to walk in step with you, to love what you love and hate what you hate. Search us, O oh God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in us, and if there is, bring it to light and cleanse us of it with the blood of Christ so that we may be fully counted among your children and not your enemies. Lord, lead us in the way everlasting. And now we pray together as Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, kids ages three through second grade, you can go hang out with your teacher. She'll meet you right in the back. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you today, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood. And I am, as always, uh, very grateful and very excited to be together with you here today and just thankful that we have the opportunity on a regular basis to be together and to look into what God's word has to say for us. As we come to this passage from Psalm 139, I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will ever praise the Lord who counsels me, even at night, my heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. 
my body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. God, we come before you this morning and we, with the psalmist, our hearts are glad. Our mouths rejoice and proclaim your goodness. We praise you because you have not and you will not abandon us. We praise you because you fill us with joy in your presence. And Lord, we ask that you, as you do each week, would meet each and every one of us who are not here by accident, that you would meet us exactly where we are. For those who are hurting, for those who are struggling, for those who are fearful, for those who are filled with doubt, for those who are grieving relationships. Lord, we ask that you would be near to us and that you'd use this psalm to encourage us, to instruct us, and that ultimately we will leave here today seeing a clearer picture of your son Jesus and what he has done for us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that even right now in this moment that you would be near to us in a unique way as we look into the word. Make us more like Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Well, as Christina said, today we are looking at Psalm 139. And this is a psalm that is uh, familiar to a lot of people, mostly for the language in the middle there. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. These are words that are familiar to many of us. And Psalm 139 is also not just familiar, but it's also unique in some ways. As we look at Psalm 139 as a whole, uh, we see that it is, uh, you could use the word, it's somewhat strange. Commentators and scholars like to try and put psalms into uh, different buckets. They like to try and categorize. So you can look at a psalm and say, well, what kind of a psalm is this that I'm reading? And so there's lots of different categorizations that they would use, like their psalms of lament, their psalms of personal praise, their psalms of sort of corporate praise, their psalms of thanksgiving, there's royal psalms, there's all sorts of these different sort of classifications. And one of the things that makes Psalm 119 a little bit unique is that it doesn't really fit into any of those categories. And in fact, as you read it, it feels like there's two polar opposite things that are happening. As you read Psalm 119 from beginning to end, uh, you get hit with a little bit of whiplash, don't you? Where David goes straight from, I am fearfully and wonderfully made into, oh God, that you would slay the wicked. And we read this and we're like, okay. This looks like some sort of scribal error <laughs> that uh, these two psalms that were not psalms at one time sort of accidentally got put together and here's what we've got in Psalm 139. And so a lot of like lectionary readings actually skip the last verses on here because we don't know what to do with it. Or you think, okay, if David did this on purpose, you think, boy, what a great way to ruin a perfectly good psalm is to, you know, is to have this wonderful, you know, it's so beautiful, and then it ends with this sort of downer of God that you would slay the wicked. And it's just this sort of strange thing that we don't know what to do with. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would be able to uh, look at this psalm and look at sort of the enigma we can look at a little bit of the mystery of these two aspects of the psalm together and see how they fit together and how there's actually good news in here for us. 
So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to look at Psalm 139. We're going to look at both parts of it together and then see how they lead us to Jesus. So what is Psalm 139? Psalm 139 first is this. It's a prayer of worship and delight. In these first 18 verses, you can see this in your English translation, the first 18 verses are broken up into three different stanzas. And each of those different stanzas, you see a paragraph break, that's a new stanza, and each of those stanzas sort of focus in on one of the character attributes of who God is, what he's like. And so the first character attribute that we see David worshiping and delighting in God for is his comprehensive knowledge. Look in verse 1, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. So just notice the the rapid-fire succession of verbs that he uses to communicate the comprehensive knowledge of God. You know me. You perceive my thoughts. You discern. You are familiar with. All these sort of words together are painting a picture. It's like David is grasping at words to try and communicate the comprehensiveness of God's knowledge. But notice that it's not just he knows his actions. It's also that God knows his inner being. His comprehensive extends into his innermost being, into his heart. Verse 2, he says, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Verse 4, before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. So God's knowledge of David is not just of his actions, not just of sort of his behavior, sort of a real time, I can see everything you're doing at any moment, but it goes deeper than that into the thoughts and the motives and the inclinations and the desires and the motives of his heart. And this is God's comprehensive knowledge, and this is what David is worshiping God for, is his comprehensive knowledge. Notice the, uh, the polar opposites that he uses. Uh, this is another technique he uses uh, to try and show us the comprehensiveness of God's knowledge. When I sit and when I rise, you discern my going out and my lying down. You hem me in behind and before. And these, uh, these opposites, this is a literary term, these are called merisms, and a merism is a way of taking two polar opposites to sort of stand for the totality of something. Okay, so we, we know something of this. So if you've ever purchased a car that has a bumper-to-bumper warranty on it, uh, it's not just the bumpers that are included in the warranty, it's everything in between. <laughs> you know, you may be searching for something that you lost and say, you know, I've searched high and I've searched low and I can't find it anywhere. You use those polar opposites to communicate the entirety of something. And that's what David is doing here. He's saying, when I sit, when I rise, when I go, when I come, you hem me in behind before. There is, he's using all these things to just grasp at words to describe God's comprehensive knowledge of him. And he delights in it. He worships God for his comprehensive knowledge. But not only for his comprehensive knowledge, also his inescapable presence that's what we see in the stanza, the second one, starting in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hands will guide me. And so again, we see him using these opposites to communicate the inescapability of God's presence. Where can I flee from God's presence? The obvious answer to that 
is nowhere. There is nowhere I can escape from God's presence. He says, if I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I go down, literally into Sheol, which is the realm of the dead, if I go up, if I go down, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, which is referring to the east, and settle on the far side of the sea, and in the geography of the Middle East, the Mediterranean Sea was to the west of the land of Israel, so up and down and east and west, says there is no dark corner. There is no recess of God's created world where you can hide from his presence. And of course, David here is not talking as one who would hide from his presence, who would flee from him if it was only possible. No, David here is exalting, he's delighting in God because his presence is inescapable. So he's delighting in God for his comprehensive knowledge, for his inescapable presence, and thirdly, for his all-creative power. Verse 13, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in a secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so what David is describing here is, as one commentator put it, the prenatal fashioning of his life. God is prenatally, is intimately and intricately involved in the creation and the forming of his very body. In verse 15 he says, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Now that word that's translated woven together is a word that was also used in Exodus 26 during the building of the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, there was these curtains that would separate the courtyard from the holy place and another one that would separate the holy place from the most holy place. And the people who constructed the tabernacle, they went out and they found the most beautiful, most expensive, most precious materials they could get their hands on. And they intricately and beautifully wove them together into these tapestries that hung, that separated God's presence from the people so that God's presence could be among the people without consuming them. And David uses that same word that's used of the fashioning, the the weaving together of those temple curtains, the tabernacle curtains. He uses that to describe God's weaving him together. God's intimately and intricately, carefully, beautifully fashioning his body prenatally in the womb. And so David is worshiping God because he has fashioned his very body. He says, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And so David here, in these first three stanzas, is delighting in, is worshiping God for his character, for his comprehensive knowledge, for his inescapable presence, for his all-creative power. And this is the response that David has to to, uh, seeing the character of God is he worships him as a response. He delights in him. He stands in awe and reverence and fear before God because of who he is. Listen to verse six. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Verse 17, how precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. 
So he is spending the first majority of the psalm just delighting in who God is. He's seeing God's character, he's seeing God's nature, and he's, in, in the best way he knows how, he's worshiping in and he's delighting in God for who he is. And the psalm not only calls us to just observe that, but also to join in with that worship as well. We as well are called to worship God because of his comprehensive knowledge, not just sort of generically of all things, but of us personally. There is not anything about us that God does not know. We are fully known by our creator. God knows everything about us, even the things that we don't know about ourselves. One of the things I was struck with this week as I was pondering this was that I will spend the rest of my life catching up to what God knows about me. I've spent a lot of time trying to be a thoughtful, reflective human being. Trying to put together the pieces of my life and to look at my family history and look at the way that I'm sort of wired and and how I can be the best version of me. I spent a fair amount of time in the room with a Christian counselor trying to help me in this. And I'm constantly, in my self-reflection, coming to these moments of, oh, that's why I am the way I am. And over the course of my life, I will die not knowing everything about me. Friends, you will die not knowing everything about you. And what you have here is a picture of what will be your life as well. You will spend the rest of your life catching up to what God already knows about you. And that should lead you to delight and to worship him because of his intimate, deep, comprehensive knowledge of who you are. But secondly, we're called to worship him. Because of his inescapable presence, there is nowhere we can go from him. We're called to worship him because of his all-creative power. Because he is, like David, he has woven us together beautifully and intricately. He's created, he's formed our human bodies in his likeness and in his image as a thing of wonder and as a thing of beauty. And every single person that we meet is someone who is created and fashioned in God's image with inherent dignity and value and worth. And we are to worship God and delight in him and stand in awe of him because of his all-creative power. And so this is the first part of the psalm. And it's beautiful, isn't it? This prayer of worship and delight where he's talking about the character of God and calling us to see who God is and also to delight in him. And then we come to the second part of the psalm, which is this prayer for justice. It's a prayer for God's judgment to fall on his enemies the technical term for this uh, is called, it's called an imprecatory psalm. Okay, the word uh, imprecation means a spoken curse. That's what you find if you look it up in the dictionary. And this is uh, part of the classification of this psalm, is that it's a psalm of worship and delight, but it's also an imprecatory psalm where David is calling on, he's asking God to bring judgment, he's asking God to bring his justice to bear on his enemies. And again, uh, this feels like something of a non sequitur as we get to this point and we go from verse 18 to verse 19 and it's like, what in the world is happening? And it feels so strange and it feels like these two things just don't belong together, but they do. What verses 19 through 24 show us is they tell us about the circumstances that led to David writing the psalm in the first place. So David is surrounded by his enemies. David is surrounded by people who hate Yahweh and who hate him, who he calls wicked, he calls bloodthirsty, so they're seeking to take his life. 
And that's the circumstances out of which this prayer of Psalm 139 comes. And so I think we just have to recognize that without the darkness of verses 19 through 24, we would not have the beauty of verses 1 through 18. If David didn't experience the agony of being pursued by his enemies and fleeing for his life, we would not have the first part of this psalm. And so not only does this just give us the context for it, I think we can learn something as we look at this psalm as a whole. And as we see the prayer of worship and delight side by side with this prayer for justice, I think it communicates something to us. Something that maybe other psalms that that call for God's justice don't communicate. It communicates something that the psalms that are just psalms of praise and worship and adoration, they don't communicate. But together, they communicate something beautiful to us. And here's what I think we see. Is when we look at the psalm as a whole unit, what we see is that David's prayer for justice was not rooted first in his hatred for his enemies. Does that make sense? David's prayer for justice was not first rooted in his hatred of his enemies. No, David's prayer for justice was rooted in, was founded upon his love for and loyalty to Yahweh. David's prayer for justice is the byproduct, it's the overflow of a heart that is worshipped in and has, has delighted in who God is. Because David loves Yahweh, because he's loyal to him, his heart overflows not only with praise and worship and adoration, his heart also overflows with a desire for God's justice to fall on those who are not just David's enemies, but God's enemies. Notice what David says here. Notice the language that he says here. If only God, you would slay the wicked. So he's not taking matters into his own hands, saying, I'm going to go out and enact justice. He's calling on God to be the one who enacts justice. Verse 20, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Yahweh, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? So David here in this psalm does not see himself primarily as the one that his enemies are rebelling against. David knows that his enemies are first and foremost enemies of God. And so what he's doing is, that, and this is, I don't know if I've ever seen anything like this before, not that I can at least uh, remember seeing, is it's like David here is rising up in defense of Yahweh. David is rising up in defense of his God because he loves his God. He's loyal to his God. And so he says, God, do you see what they're saying about you? Do you see what they're doing? Do you see the way they're treating me? God, do you see the way that they are defaming you? That they're taking your honor and your glory and they're minimizing it and they're dragging it in the mud? Do you see what they're doing to your name, God? Will you do something about it? Are you going to let them continue to talk about you like this, God? And so everything in the psalm is David rising up in defense of his God, First and foremost, yes, these are David's enemies, and we have to recognize that. But just notice that David here does not first base this prayer in, oh, I hate those people, so I'm going to pray for God to bring judgment on them. He says, no, they've set themselves against my God, and I love him. And because I love him, because I'm loyal to him, I want to see God's justice fall on anyone who sets himself against the one that I love. And so it's born out of this intimate love and experience of God's presence that David prays for justice. But notice also, he's not arrogant and he's not self-deceived. 
Notice what he says in verse 23. Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So David here, as he prays for justice, has not set his focus just outside to those people who are God's enemies. At the same time he prays for justice, he also looks inwards and says, God, test me. In other words, David's prayer for justice includes the demand, not a pleading, but a demand that God do a work inside of him to expose to bring light to the things inside of him that may be rebellion like he sees in those who are outside as his enemies. So David here is not just looking outward, saying, God, would you do something about those people? He's saying, God, if there's anything in me that looks anything like the rebellion that I see in those people, God, would you take it away? His heart loves God, his heart loves Yahweh. And as a result, he wants there to be nothing that is getting in the way between him and his God. And so he prays not only that God would bring justice on them, but that God would work inside of him to remove anything. See, David's humble enough to know, I am not immune from the kind of rebellion and wickedness and bloodthirstiness I see in other people. David's life tells the story of that. He's not immune from that kind of sin. And so he prays, God, would you expose anything in me and get rid of it? So he's not arrogant. He's not self-deceived. But he calls on God to search him and to know him. David can pray this way. In fact, this is the only way that David or any of us can pray this way, is knowing both the justice and the goodness of God. Is knowing both that God is dangerous and he's good. Knowing that, as C.S. Lewis famously put it in the Chronicles of Narnia, I believe, he's not safe, but he's good. And that's the only way that we can, like David, pray, test me, O God, know what's inside my heart. If God is only a God of justice, we are sunk, and we can never pray that prayer without being destroyed by God. And yet David knows he's not just a God of justice, he's also a God of goodness. And so he prays for God to bring about his justice and to expose those things inside of him. So the question is, is God's comprehensive knowledge of David, that he knows everything, including the thoughts and the motives and the intentions, Is that comprehensive knowledge of David and of us, is that good news? And the answer to that question is, well, it depends. Is God's inescapable presence good news for us? Well, it depends, right? Is God's creative power that he fashioned us in his image, he owns us, we owe everything to him, is that good news for us? That depends. (laughs) That depends entirely upon our relationship with Yahweh. If we have, like David's enemies, set ourselves against God, 
if we have, like his enemies, set ourselves at odds with Yahweh, God's comprehensive knowledge of us, his inescapable presence, is the most horrifying thing that could possibly be true about God if we have set ourselves against him. And yet, if we are hidden in him, if we have found refuge in him, like David so often talks about in the Psalms, if we have experienced his mercy and his covenant faithfulness and his loyalty towards us, if we've experienced the renewing presence of his spirit, then we can pray, search me, O God. We have nothing to hide because God knows it anyways and we know that God has taken every ounce of his goodness and put it behind our good. And so we have nothing to fear praying, God, search me and know my heart. The only way we can pray for God to search us and to know us like this and to expose what's inside of us is if we understand both the justice and the goodness of God. And David knew this. David knew and experienced personally both the justice and the goodness of God. When David sinned against Bathsheba, that was one of those experiences where he, ex- where he, he, he experienced both the justice and the goodness of God. When he sinned against Bathsheba by sexually taking advantage of her, and when he then, to cover it up, had her husband Uriah murdered, he experienced the justice of God. God's judgment came upon him. And yet at the same time, we also see, as you look at the story of David's life in the narrative of the Bible, as it's inspired and given to us by God, that moment didn't define David. He wasn't forever known as the adultering murderer. God didn't remove his faithful covenant promises to David because he screwed up. God remained faithful to David, so he experiences both sides of this. He experiences the the goodness of God as well as the justice and the judgment of God. David knew this God who had revealed himself at Sinai as the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast, faithful, covenant, loyal love. He knew that he revealed himself as a God of goodness and grace and mercy and also as a God who would not leave the guilty unpunished. And all throughout the Old Testament, we see this picture of Adam and Eve rebelled against God and they experience the judgment of God. They're expelled from the garden and at the very same time, God clothes their nakedness. God extends mercy to them and he promises that he will send a deliverer who will crush the head of the serpent. We see God's people at Sinai, and while Moses is on top of the mountain, receiving the instructions for the tabernacle, which is how God's presence is supposed to be able to be among his people. This is the whole plan, friends. God's presence is going to be with his people, and while Moses is getting the instructions for how that's going to happen, they're at the bottom of the mountain creating a golden calf and worshiping it. And they experience the justice of God. They experience an outpouring of his judgment. And they also experience his mercy. Because as a response to that total epic failure on their part, God reveals himself as gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast, loyal love. And so we see all throughout the Old Testament both the justice and the mercy of God in all of these different ways. And in fact, part of the the central sort of question 
uh, the, sort of the problem, one of the, if you could put it that way, uh, one of the conundrums that you find in the Bible is, okay, how is God going to be just and be faithful to the covenant promises he's made? Because if the, if the consequences for breaking the covenant are death and the people have broken the covenant, how is it that God can stay faithful to his character and the people can be saved? And it's only, it only happens when you see the justice and the mercy of God coming together. And so David knew he understood both the justice and the mercy of God. He understood the danger of God's presence as well as his overflowing goodness. And friends, we get to see an even clearer picture than even David knew. We get to look back on the cross and see Jesus. And it was at the cross where the justice and the mercy of God, the judgment and the mercy of God came together. And we see at the cross just how seriously God takes sin. You know, so often, just I'll just put myself in this position. I won't speak for you, but I'm assuming many of you can identify with me. I so rarely emotionally feel the horror of my sin, of my idolatry. And the cross reveals to us just how sickening and abhorrent and foolish and arrogant and stupid our sin is. And it shows us that God can't simply sweep it under the rug. He can't just let bygones be bygones. He can't just forgive. So what God did was he sent his son Jesus, who suffered and died and hung on the cross, and as he did, he sat underneath the full weight of the justice of God for the rebellion that we have committed for the sin and the idolatry that lurks inside of every single one of our hearts. He sat underneath the full weight of God's justice so that God's justice would not have to fall on us. And so we see the justice of God is God makes good on that. God doesn't put his justice aside in order to provide salvation. No, he's fully just. But the cross also shows us the the goodness of God too. Not only his justice, but his goodness and his faithfulness and his love to us. Because after all, remember, and we've talked about this before, God did not have to rescue any of us. God doesn't need us for anything. And yet, as the overflow of his compassionate, loving, generous heart, he made a way for us to be rescued from our sin. He made a way for us to experience new life and to be grafted into his family and that plan costs God, not us. It's free for us. God is the one who took on the cost. As Jesus hung on the cross, God the Father sent God the Son. And Jesus, as God himself incarnate, he absorbed into himself the full weight and the sting of our sin. And in doing so, we can experience new life. And so the cross is both the clearest demonstration of both God's justice and his, his love, his justice and his compassionate heart. So it, it's not that you look in the Old Testament and you see this sort of angry, crabby old man up in the sky, God, who just likes to like uh, throw lightning bolts at people and judge them. And then he gets to the New Testament and it's all like, well, there's sort of hippie Jesus and he likes to forgive people and now we see the love of God. No, that's not, it. that's not it at all. We don't see 
a God of justice replaced by a God of love in the New Testament, we see all of the justice and all of the judgment and all of the love and the compassion that you see already present in the Old Testament is ratcheted up and you see it most fully expressed and dealt with in the person of Jesus at the cross. And so we get the privilege of being able to see what David only saw in part. The cross shows us that God does take sin seriously and his judgment is only matched by his mercy. His judgment is only matched by his compassion. And so as we come to the communion table today, we get to remember that this is our God. We see this picture of God and his inescapable presence, his comprehensive knowledge. And we also see his goodness and his justice and all these things coming together. And we don't have to pick and choose which of them we, we get to have in God. He's all of those things. And so we get to remember and celebrate. And as we come forward and receive the elements, we take them in our hands, we, we receive simultaneously, we receive the symbol of the justice and the compassion and the mercy and the love of God that's been clearly expressed to us in Jesus. And so we get to remember and celebrate that today. As we come to the Lord's table, I want to invite you to take just a few moments of quiet reflection and contemplation. Our merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. We've sinned against you, O God, by our thoughts and by our words and by our deeds, by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart, mind, and strength, and we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, along with David, we pray Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me to the way everlasting. God, we ask that you would give us the same spirit of humility that we see in David. That as we, like him, cry out for justice to be done in our world, for you to bring justice, for you to bring your kingdom on heaven as it is on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, as we pray for that justice, give us the same kind of humility we see in David to also look inwardly. And remind us, God, of your unbelievable, faithful, loyal covenant love. In your mercy, O God, we pray that you would forgive what we have been. Help us amend what we are and direct what we shall be so that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said,